Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are talking about the Gospels. This is Gospels part 115. Last week we saw where Jesus was using a series of parables to once again describe, illustrate what the nature of the coming of the Messianic kingdom is going to be like when after he goes away and then comes back, particularly the dynamic of, uh, you could say, the surprise, the not knowing when it's going to be coming, the unexpected nature of its coming. Um, yeah. And he, we saw that through the parable of the ten virgins who were waiting to meet the bridegroom. And we had that dynamic of they all fell asleep, and then the bridegroom came, and then some of them had enough oil in their lamps, and that showcases like their merit, their faithfulness. And then yeah. um, there were those who didn't, and they needed more, and they were told to go buy it. And And then we see this distinction that we follow in later parables where those with the merit, those with the oil, get to celebrate in the wedding feast, and the rest of them are shut out and don't get to experience it. Right. Um, and we see that later, but just to continue on this journey, the unexpected nature also shows up in the parable of the uh, servants with the um, the master with the talents and right. the giving of each so many talents and how you're going to interact with that money, invest it, etc. But you don't know when the master is going to return, and then. The distinction is made more clear in the parables concerning shepherd and sheep and the um, sorting between sheep and goats to showcase that when the messianic kingdom comes, there's going to be a distinction, a differentiation between those who are loyal and faithful and those who are not. Yeah. You know, it's funny listening to you say it back. It actually makes it much more obvious, much more clear to me that people could be listening to us talk about this and not like what they're hearing. That's definitely possible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think of it so much, I guess, when I'm talking about it all the time because I end up talking about stuff like this all the time. But, yeah, this is this is hard, I think, for many, many Christians to hear because when they think of people who, you know, make make no attempt in any way to to serve God, love God, be Christian, whatever you want to label it. Well, I think it's easy for them to go, well, yeah, you know, you may have you may not have a very good outcome, right? They they're they accept that easily. But when it comes down to wait a second. You're saying that even among us, people who, you know what, we said the prayer or we made that decision or you know whatever it might be, that somehow it's not just as simple as, well, yeah, I believe in God, therefore I get to go to heaven or whatever they, it is they say. It, yeah, it's not that simple. And don't be mad at us. Remember who's talking here. It's Jesus, <laughs> Yeah, right? And, and it isn't just him. You're, you're going to see this through the rest of the New Testament as well. 
if you're actually slowing down, reading what's really there, paying attention, you're going to see that this, it's, it's an important part. We, we play a role. We are not effective for our own salvation, and yet we cannot be completely passive and inactive. And it, as we see here, it makes the difference. Are you identified as a sheep or a goat? You don't want to be the goat, even mm-hmm. though, you know, in modern terms, if you were thinking greatest of all time, maybe you do want to be the goat. But <laughs> in this case, you don't want to be the goat. So let's see what happens. We, we had finished. It was unfortunate, but we had to sort of break this final parable at the end of the podcast. We, we learned about what was going on with the sheep, and that was all good news. But now what remains, we're going to finish up and we're going to talk about what happens to the goats. So let's at least read Matthew chapter 25, verses 41 through 46, and then we'll talk about that. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not? minister to you. Then he will answer them, saying, Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Ouch! That's that's harsh, right? So mm-hmm. uh, just as a reminder, we were trying to count through the parables. We ended up calling this one parable number six, even though we aren't entirely convinced. We thought maybe it was just a number five, whatever. But this is part two, the, the second half of that. So here's the outline. You got this king, and now he's speaking to the goats. The sheep were on the right, the goats were on his left. He sends them away from the kingdom. He tells them they are cursed. He sends them into the eternal fire. This is the fire that was prepared for the devil and his angels. All bad stuff that should, I think, lead you to ask why. Why? Well, the king offers the reason. You didn't feed me when I was hungry. You left me thirsty. You didn't, you didn't show hospitality. You didn't clothe me. You didn't care for me when I was sick or visit me in prison. The king tells them that they did none of that for him or to him. But, and I hope you can remember one episode ago, <laughs> we were talking about the sheep. These guys are confused. They don't remember, just like the sheep didn't remember doing those things, these guys don't remember, you know, not 
doing these things. I mean, come on. When did we see that? They review the complete list. But the king tells them that it wasn't that they didn't do it directly or explicitly to him or for him. It was by not doing it to, and in this case, the phrase he uses is the least of these, by not doing it to the least of these, it was the same. It was just as if they had not done it to him or for him. And again, I say, ouch. Now notice, just like with the sheep, it was important that they were, or in this case, were not doing the right things. Now, Here's, I think that this is important for modern Christians, especially American Christians to hear. They may have been doing all sorts of what we might call or think of as religious things. But when it got down to it, they weren't really imaging God. And we talked about it, justice, mercy, whatever. That's what we see in feeding, quenching thirst, hospitality, all that stuff. Now, their end is kind of scary. Talks about eternal fire, eternal punishment, eternal life, all this stuff. Many people look at this particular section of scripture, these verses right at the end, and this is very, very popular support for this doctrine, or uh, I don't know what else you'd call it, eternal conscious torment. That's the the phrase that I'm uh, familiar with anyway. So let's talk about a few of these things. Number one, I want to focus in just for a moment on this word eternal. We, when we think of the word word eternal, Samuel, can you think of another English word that we might use to mean the same kind of thing? Uh, Forever and ever, infinity. Infinity. That's the one I was looking for. Yeah, when we think of the word eternal, we think infinity. In your Bible, and and I'm not saying that infinity is wrong, okay? But but here this much. In your Bible when it uses the word etern- eternal, it's something more like age long. Which okay, what does that mean? That that's not very helpful, Paul. All right. Here's an example. From the time that God created the heavens and the earth, back in Genesis 1, until the time when they pass away, right, at the end, down in Revelation. Okay, you might think of that as an age. So, when we see words or phrases like eternal, or Samuel, like you said, forever and ever, or we might see the word everlasting, or we might see all generations, or whatever, okay, that's referring to an age. Now, I know that can be pretty ambiguous. And I mean, who's to say that it couldn't actually mean infinity, like the, the world to come is is that actually infinity in, in sense of time or whatever. Okay, it could be. I'm just saying in your Bible, when you're talking about God's covenants with Israel or David or the Levites, etc., all these things that are often talked about as eternal They are age long. They end when heaven and earth pass away. The reason that that's really important is because when we speak of the new covenant, it is for the coming age. Now, 
It's true. We've talked about it a lot. It has been inaugurated. It has been started in this age, this age, but it will be fully enacted or it will be in full force in the age to come, however long that age may be. So it's just one of those things where it's kind of important that we try to be consistent. And so whatever eternal translates to in this verse or in God's reality or whatever you want to say, we need to see it consistently. So the fire, it's eternal. There, there is eternal life. There is eternal punishment. Whatever we're talking about, at the very least, they should be consistent, however it is we view that. Now, verse 46 specifically uses the word punishment. And when we look into, you know, the, the Greek and the, even like the related Hebrew, whatever, now we definitely see that it's like what we think. It would include things like harm or insult or shame, okay, punishment. But just to say it out loud, it also includes ideas like chastisement or correction. And and these are all valid motivations for punishment. And, and, and again, just like we said, hey, eternal has to mean something. It has to be consistent. Well, punishment has to mean something. And it, you know, it means punishment very much the way we think of it. And maybe even slight bits that we wouldn't normally think of, but it all makes sense. So we're trying to put this together. We know a couple of things. There will be punishment and it will be eternal. Okay. And and again, whatever eternal means age long or whatever. But I want you to consider something. Samuel, I'd like you to read something from Jude. This is, well, okay. I was about to say chapter seven. It's just Jude seven, (laughs) which that's weird, but read that for us. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Ah, okay. Now think about what that just said. I mean, I'm going to paraphrase. Sodom and and Gomorrah were punished by an eternal fire. So Samuel... Most people wouldn't know this, but you and I, sometime in our future, we're going to go to Israel. True? Mm-hmm. So, what do you think? Can we go see that fire? Uh, I don't believe so. Well, I, I don't understand. Why not? It's an eternal fire. Why can't we go see it? I'm actually <laughs> struggling with that question. Right. I mean, right. It's, invis- it's invisible. I mean, right. Well, I don't, you know, to be fair, I wasn't there and I didn't see it. However, I'm thinking that, uh, no, (laughs) had you been in Sodom and Gomorrah at the time they were destroyed, it would have been quite visible, right? Okay. Yeah. So the thing is, and and this is, I mean, it's going to be weird, but why can't we see it? Because it went out. But it's eternal. But it went out. I, I mean, what do you even do with that? I mean, I thought that... I mean, at the very least, we were saying that eternal meant that it was age long, even if it didn't mean infinity. We're still in this age. So what the heck are we even talking about? So I'm going to offer just food for thought. We might say that the fire burned until it was finished. It had 
fulfilled its purpose. You might even say it burned until it ran out of fuel. I don't know. Whatever. But it's called eternal. And so, in what way is it eternal? Well, it's eternal in that its effects cannot be reversed. It's kind of like the eternal judgment of Hebrews chapter 6, verse 2. Now, I didn't write that down here. Samuel, I don't know. You may want to go look that up real quick if you want to read it for everyone. I don't know. But here's the point. If you go read Hebrews chapter 6, verse 2, the writer didn't mean that, that you were in some sort of groundhog day of judgment for all eternity, because it speaks of eternal judgment. So are you literally going to be judged over and over and over and over continuously for all eternity? Well, no. It's eternal judgment because you're going to be judged, and that judgment cannot, will not be changed. The judgment is eternal. So Sodom and Gomorrah's judgment was eternal, and it was, they were judged, uh, their end came by fire, and so in a sense, that fire was eternal. It was final. It was the end of that judgment, right? You could also look at Mark chapter 3, verse 29. Samuel, it talks about eternal sin. Can you even picture what that means? Are you going to sin continuously over and over and over and over for all of an age or for all of infinity or whatever you want to call that? Is that what it means? Well, no. All of this complicates things. So when we're talking about eternal punishment or eternal life or eternal death or, or all of these things, it's not as black and white as we want to make it. Now, additionally, we have this overall three, uh, theme that runs through all of the scriptures, and that is the theme of life versus death. And there are many scriptures that seem to allude to an end that is in some way definite, meaning not continuous, not ongoing, okay? So let's just look at one example. There are others. Revelation chapter 21, verse 8. Why don't you read that one for us, Samuel? But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Yeah. Now, John, he's writing of an end that he calls death. And, and when we're speaking of it, it's, it's a state that can't be reversed. And, and now, there is a big argument here. I mean, some people do, in fact, look at this, and they think that, no, 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 it's eternal dying. They, they would call that eternal conscious torment. But I think that it is at least reasonable for us to look at this and go, well, wait, if that fire wasn't actually eternal, like we can't go see it today, if their, what were we talking about, their judgment isn't eternal, in, as in they are continually judged day after day, forever and ever, if their sin isn't continually performed day after day, forever and ever, well, maybe this death also isn't 
eternal conscious torment. It isn't going on day after day, forever and ever and ever. It is instead the state. It's a result. It's something that cannot be reversed. Therefore, it is final. It is eternal in that sense. Now, my point is simply this. I don't want to make some grand statement that, you know, I am right and you are wrong, or you are right and I'm wrong. I'm not, I'm not trying to do that. I'm trying to show, look, we don't know. And if you were looking at the notes, you would see that's in all caps and bold, right? We don't know. And to be fair, if, you know, we don't know. Let's say it's Samuel and Paul. We don't know. Neither does anyone else. And that is to say, neither do you. We know what makes sense to us. We know what convinces us. I personally am convinced that the opposite of eternal life is eternal death, which, you know, some people, uh, there are other names for it. You might call it extinction or annihilation. And boy, to go into the entire defense of that, it's way too long. It's not for here. It's not for these gospels. But I also am convinced that there will be punishment and it may span some time. I just don't know what that means exactly. Ultimately, I think that you will cease to be, and it is irreversible. You will, you know, forever and always be not. (laughs) That is sort of the end of eternal punishment, the, the target or the goal. Now, of course, I think I'm right, but that's not the same as I think I'm right and therefore you are wrong or whatever. Whatever it is you're convinced of, don't be so rigid that you can't sincerely welcome people with different thinking as sincere and equal brethren. The ultimate and most important takeaway out of all of this stuff is is this. We need to pursue life. Okay? I mean... If we have arguments and questions, debates, whatever you want to call them, about what the end looks like, what death looks like, what punishment looks like, and all that kind of stuff, is it better to really refine your argument, or is it better to pursue life? Just avoid whatever the bad end is. And life is the end goal of the law. Life is the practical example shown to us here and in the law. And if you're pursuing that, if you're thinking about that, let's call it if you're worrying about that, well, then you really don't have to worry so much about the other side, the other half, the other part, death, punishment, whatever it is, at least not for yourself. So what I tried to do was offer my point of view, knowing that it was going to be troublesome to some. Okay, and and to try to say, listen, we can all live together. Consider the things that I'm saying. Maybe they'll have an effect on your opinion. Maybe they won't. It's okay. But together, let's do the right thing. Let's all pursue life because that's the answer to whatever questions we might have. Yeah, Paul, this this is heavy stuff for sure. (laughs) Yeah. It's hard to try to think of what in particular to, to respond to um the, the only other thing that's coming into mind for me is in the same way how we you know within okie dokimos stand sort of on the other side of the spectrum from 
eternal conscious torment. Um, I would also say, at least the stuff that I've read within Jewish literature, this idea of God's punishment, uh, you could say, you know, within the grave, Sheol, and then, you know, if, if we're looking at later in the, the resurrection and... Lake like, of fire. Yeah, like like eternal life or eternal death. Um, I have read stuff that suggests that rabbinic thought treats God's punishment less as a, you could say, a malicious intent, uh, you know, like a heavy hand kind of approach, and more like whenever you are stripped of your mortal body and you are just left with your immortal spirit in the in the grave, there is this clarity or there's this realization of the totality of your life and all the things that you did do and all the things that you did not do, um, either promoting justice, mercy, God's attributes, or promoting the anti-story. You promoted competition. You promoted uh, jealousy, um, scarcity, you yeah. know, violence, death. And um, that clarity of mind of realizing what your life became in some ways is like this fire or this agony, you know, the, uh-huh. the weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, and And like to me, it's this true justice that I'm seeing God do in this illustration to say that like, you know, our our uh, finite representation of justice is much more retributive and uh, dynamic, action-oriented, but within God's yeah. form, it's it's just, you know, the we've talked about it before, like the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. It's like your your punishment in some sense is realizing the wisdom that you you had or that you lacked. I don't know if that makes yeah. sense. It's very kind of abstract, but it's it's just a, an interesting alternative way to think about God's punishment and judgment rather than I smite you and etc. Right, right, yeah, and that's a really good point. It even raises the question of, wow, how should we even view the fire? I mean, how literal is it? You know, is it the same flame that we see here in creation, or is it actually something different, like some of the things that you talked about? I mean, these are real questions, and you can't just scoff at them or brush them aside, because they're things that God hasn't completely revealed, and and we just need to recognize sometimes we don't know everything. It's okay, mm-hmm. right? And, and also, you reminded me, Samuel, getting back to the point, the point of this parable is to say, listen— where I'm not trying to uh, pretend Jesus is speaking. I'm not trying to raise some big debate about the end and what it looks like in heaven or hell or you know what what reward and punishment looks like. That wasn't his point at all. His point was, hey, you should pursue the good thing, and the good thing looks like feeding the hungry, quenching the thirst, showing hospitality, visiting, etc., etc., etc. And when you're not the guy doing those things, you're not being truly human. You're not truly imaging God. You are not laying or walking the pathway to eternal life. I mean, that's the, that's the point that we need to take away. And it just, it's good. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Anything else, Samuel? 
No. All right. If we move on, we're going to completely different topics. So <laughs> let's do this thing, huh? Oh, yeah. All right. Let's see. We're, uh, well, this is kind of a, a weird little segue uh, verse. Uh, we're looking at Luke chapter 21. It's actually verses 37 and 38. We'll touch on this real quick. It'll feel even like just a segue. So we'll, we'll do that and then we'll move on. Uh, Luke says this. And every day he was teaching in the temple. But at night, he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Now, again, I know we've noted this a number of times. We see that pattern of Jesus's last week. Jerusalem by day, Bethany by night. Except here in Luke, it isn't Bethany. He says that he stays on the Mount of Olives. So, I don't know. We have this little bit of confusion or maybe just variety. I don't know what you want to call it. In the daytime, he's in Jerusalem, he's at the temple, and at night he goes away and it's either to Bethany or the Mount of Olives, you know, something. But one way or another, he's sort of escaping the city. Now, uh, one other thing, okay, there's nothing about this verse that actually makes you feel like we passed from one day to the next. It's just descriptive of his days generally. But uh, we're going to simply use this point, this this moment, if you will, just to acknowledge that, okay, somewhere right about here, it's it's Wednesday. Tuesday, it seems like we've been on Tuesday for a long time. We're now on Wednesday, and this is going to be Jesus's last day of teaching in the temple. And we might even say Jesus teaching publicly. So if you were reading along in any single gospel, it just kind of depends. The distinction of each individual day, it isn't always clear. You know, in one spot it may be, in another spot it may not be, whatever. And so we can't be super precise or absolutely certain of which day is which at every given moment. And actually, as we continue, okay, we always make the joke, the good news is it's only going to get worse. It, it especially when we start talking about the idea of, hey, exactly which day is it that he died? And, you know, what? when did they have their supper and all that? Man, it's going to get really confusing from this point on. But we're going to go ahead, at least at this point, and go, okay, uh, now go ahead and set your brains. Let's look at, we've made it to Wednesday. And the reason that I feel pretty confident in that is what we read in this next bit. So, Samuel, do you have anything before we go on? Um, just is this mount that he's lodging at all of it is that still within the boundaries of jerusalem proper or is that outside of the city and it, is it, he is he lodging away because he's trying to avoid his enemies or his opposition yeah okay good questions uh, number one it is outside jerusalem and it's actually on the way to Bethany, to and from Bethany. So so when he leaves Bethany, he has to go up and over the Mount of Olives. And when he leaves Jerusalem to go back to Bethany, he goes up and over the Mount of Olives. Luke is suggesting that sometimes he doesn't go all the way back to Bethany. Uh, your other question, why is he leaving? Uh, I think I think that uh, this is very debatable. It's kind of, it's left up to the hearer. Maybe he just didn't bother to find lodging within the city. I mean, I'm sure there was a lot of competition for lodging within. A lot of people had to stay without. Uh, it could be that he did want to escape. He needed some alone time. Uh, there could be a number of reasons, Samuel. It never really tells us exactly why. 
we're just noting the pattern so that when you're creating your mental image of what did it look like when Jesus was going through all this, you see him going to and from. Gotcha. Yeah. So, all right. So the next bit, uh, we're going to read from Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 through 5, and this has parallels in Mark chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, and Luke chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. I'm going to read Matthew and then one little bit from Mark. So in Matthew, it says this. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the son of man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, I wanted to read from Mark because he's just so explicit. He says, it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. <laughs> Thanks, okay. Mark. It's Wednesday, right? We got it, right? Jesus tells his disciples again that he is going to be crucified, and he's explicit. It will happen on Passover. And what's funny is we don't get any extra commentary in the Scripture about how they reacted. I mean, maybe they finally accepted it understood its necessity. And then, of course, you kind of got to go with, "Mm, nah, probably not. (laughs) But they don't tell us anything. Jesus just says it, and then they kind of go on. But we do, Matthew gives us some other interesting insight into what is happening sort of in parallel with the leaders in Israel. Some portion of these leaders, and I don't know, probably some significant portion of them, they're gathering in the palace of the high priest, Caiaphas. Now, I don't know if you caught that word, Samuel, his palace. Hmm. Yeah, you want to let that sink in for a second? But, okay, hold on. To be fair, I'm sure his place was nice and everything, but that word palace, it's more likely referring to the courtyard, that open, decorative garden area that was uh, attached to the high priest's residence, which uh, from archaeology and every other uh, record that we have, uh, that existed. It was a real thing. So it's probably not what we picture as a palace. It's probably actually referring to that courtyard. Anyway, they're there, and they're plotting how they're going to arrest him and kill him. But they want it to be hush-hush. What's the phrase, Samuel? They want to keep it on the down low, right? Did I use that term correctly? You could also say the DL. Oh, the DL, yeah. See, I'm old. I don't know these things, whatever. (laughs) But they feared an uproar from the people. Just, you know, generally, because Jesus was popular, okay? But they really didn't want it, this this uproar, during the festival. Because, I mean, Jerusalem is just packed with people. This would have been a bad, bad time. It'd just be way too many people. And a a lot of these people, even the ones that are coming from outside the Galilee and outside, outside Israel even, 
they were excited and interested in this potential Messiah. So to do it during the festival would have just been added trouble. And so, in a way, it's kind of cool to see Jesus, he knows the day. He states it. It's going to be on Passover. The leaders, the ones who were actually going to be sort of the the real cause of all of this coming down, they actually would have preferred it to be at a different time. But, as we know and we'll see, it's going to go exactly the way Jesus says. And it's just one of those moments where you just, you know, you recognize and you kind of like it. God is in control. Mm. <laughs> it's going to happen the way he wants. So mm-hmm. uh, what do you got there, Samuel? I just wanted to point out, and maybe hopefully I'm not uh, extrapolating too much out of the text, but I find it interesting of uh, what group of people are not mentioned in this section. Do you ah. notice what group of people is not mentioned among those that are doing this plotting? The Pharisees. Yeah. Yeah. I find that yeah. interesting and telling. That yeah. Like, this, is, this is who caused it uh, specifically. But yeah. our Western minds want to insert other people who are not present among this group of people. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, to be sure, when we say that phrase, chief priests, we know we are talking about Sadducees. When it says elders of the people... Okay, that becomes at least a little more ambiguous, and we could at least say, well, could there have been some Pharisees included in that? And you've got to go, oh, well, sure, yeah, yeah, that's possible. But yeah, you're right. Not one of them, not one of the accounts, the Gospels, mentions anything about the Pharisees. <laughs> right. And so, the, yeah, it's good. the Gospel writers, especially Matthew, like I feel like... When he's wanting to reference the Pharisees, he's very explicit to say oh, yeah. Pharisees. So it's yeah. I'm just using that as a potential argument to say that, of course, it is possible that Pharisees are included in that phrase. But sure. yeah. the way that Matthew writes, it could definitely also not be. Yes, the gospel writers are not afraid to throw the Pharisees under the bus when they need to be thrown mm-hmm. under the bus. Yeah, <laughs> it's for sure. So yeah, good, good point. Anything else? Nope. Okay. All right. Now, this is going to seem kind of weird, because now, all of a sudden, we've been going through the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, for a long time. All of a sudden, we're going to slip back over to John. So, hang on to your butts. Uh, (laughs) John chapter 12, verses 20 to 22. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So, these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida. In Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Okay, so there are some just interesting things, and it it happens every time we go to John. So uh, while the plotting is going on, we switch to John's gospel and we hear about some Greeks. Now, in John's gospel, just to kind of get your head centered, we had just finished the story of the triumphal entry. So a lot of, a lot of things have passed in between here. The last complaint from the Pharisees watching that triumphal entry was that the world has gone after him. And now all of a sudden, these Greeks show up. So, I mean, you kind of see 
some continuity with John. So that was kind of cool. Now, when you hear that phrase, that there were some Greeks, I don't know. I don't know how you think. You might imagine these to be uh, maybe some Hellenist Jews or something like that. Uh, But the use of the word Greeks was actually very common for Gentiles, and there was a little bit of a difference. You you might especially think of the Greco-Roman world. Gentiles, Greeks were Gentiles of the Greco-Roman world. When you went outside of that, you might hear other phrases like Scythians or barbarians or, you know, something of that nature. So, So there was a little bit of nuance in there. But anyway, it was basically referring to Gentiles. And so the common thinking is that these guys weren't Jews, and in fact, they weren't even proselytes, but that they were Gentile God-fearers. They were loyal to the, the, the Jewish God, the, the Israelite God, Yahweh. They were loyal to him in belief and in practice. Now, they didn't keep the law as a Jew. They didn't keep the law the same way a Jew did or the the same degree that a Jew did, but they did keep some of the law as they were able or as was appropriate for them, which should kind of remind us of ourselves today. They had to keep, and this is important, they had to keep some of the law just so they could enter the court of the Gentiles in the temple. Gentiles were welcome there, but there were some some limited rules that, that they needed to follow. The, they needed to be ritually pure at the very least because they were, you know, moving in and among all the Jews. They didn't want to ruin it for them. And most people don't know this or, or think about it or whatever. These Gentiles, these God-fearing Gentiles entering the court of the Gentiles, they could even have priests make sacrifices on their behalf. Okay, they couldn't do it themselves. They couldn't actually participate, but they could request priests to do such a thing. It was kind of limited, but they could, right? So, again, that's kind of an image of Gentile believers today, but we're not going to push that too far here. Just just imagine physically they or we able to live in community with God's chosen people. It's sort of that grafted in picture, I guess we should say. Uh, But it goes much further now. So, like, you look at them, physically they were able to be in the community with God's chosen people, but for us now, we look at it, like, like, let's just call it spiritually. We're not just living in the community, we are now also sons of Abraham, and we are sons of Abraham by faith, not by actually converting and becoming Jewish. But the point is, we are the community too. We're not just living in the community or with the community. We're, we actually make it up also. So that's kind of a neat thing. But anyway, uh, these Greeks, they come to Philip. Now, we don't know why or even how they chose him. Uh, and, and also, John reminds us that Philip is from Bethsaida, like Peter and Andrew were from Bethsaida. The, the thing is, I, I mean, maybe that's important. But honestly, (laughs) I can't see why. I haven't read anything for anybody to explain why it was important that John reminded us that Philip was from Bethsaida, Uh, right? It's, It's very weird. But then it's so funny because it says they asked him, so you expect it to be a question, 
And then John writes, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Kind of sounds a little more like a statement. I, I don't know. It's just, this is John. He, he writes in a strange way, and yet it's awesome and wonderful. So anyway, they request, hey, can we see Jesus? And I, I'm even going to go further. I think it's actually fair to assume that the, what they actually meant was that they wanted to talk with him in some way. Now, it could be. Maybe they were just asking Philip to point him out. Hey, which one is Jesus, right? They just wanted to watch from afar. But I, I don't. it doesn't really make sense to me. I mean, it would make this whole little part of the story extremely superfluous. I, I don't know why they would do that, why Philip would tell Andrew and why they would tell Jesus, hey, these Greeks were here and, you know, they wanted us to point you out. It, it, it doesn't make sense. I think they wanted to talk to him. But it, it just shows that Jesus' fame exceeds Galilee and Jerusalem, even in Israel. Or, I'm sorry, it exceeds even all of Israel. But anyway, Philip tells Andrew, and they both go to tell Jesus together. And even then, what's that about? Did Philip feel like he needed some backup or something? Or maybe it was, you know, more of a, hey, these Gentiles want to talk to Jesus. What should we do? And so they decide to go together. Or maybe it was kind of like when women all need to go to the bathroom together. I don't know. (laughs) But whatever really happened, they did, in fact, go and tell Jesus. And just a side note, there are some scholars from their perspective, they're looking at this and they're going, hey, these are the only two disciples whose names see to be, seem to be pretty clearly Greek names. Is there something to that? I don't know. It's interesting. I, I just thought I'd bring it up in case you see something there, but I don't know. It's just weird. John's storytelling. And then here's the other thing. We don't hear anything more about these Gentiles, at least not explicitly. Now, I'm going to talk about them a bit as we continue through, but in the text, in the narrative, we're done. They're gone. So now maybe Jesus was cool with them, and, and we can just sort of make the assumption or have that image in, in our head that they, you know, they are around and they're listening, etc. Or maybe Jesus just kind of ignored them or refused them. And, and, and then maybe as we're reading, we're supposed to just forget about them too. The text just doesn't say. They told Jesus and then they disappear from the story. Or maybe they disappear from the story. It just depends on how you look at it. So before we go on, Samuel, got anything? Uh, that's just very surprising that the text just drops the story off. And the way that you're structuring it, you're suggesting that in this next section that we're about to go into, I mean, you're going to tell the verses that you're going to read, but I'm just looking at our screen right here, uh-huh. yeah. uh, John 12, 23, when he says this phrase, and Jesus answered them, we're, we're going to suggest that he's not actually talking to the Greeks. Like, this is not a continuation of this previous section. It's just something completely different. Well, I think what what I'm suggesting is that we don't know who them is. I mean, we sh- you should just go yeah, ahead and read it. Yeah, let's it. go ahead and read it so people know what we're talking about, and then we'll come right back to your question because it's. I think it's super important. Let, let's go ahead and read. This is in John. It's chapter 12, verses 23 to 26. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. 
But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Okay, so back to your question. It starts out with, and Jesus answered them. Okay, first of all, when we're thinking of who is them, I guess it could be Philip and Andrew, right? What's the last thing we heard? Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Mm -hmm. Okay, so he answered Philip and Andrew. Well, where are the Greeks? We don't know. Or some people, when they're reading this, they actually do feel like, hey, this is a complete change of scene, you know, whatever. And when it says he answered them, it's just another story where he's just talking to the crowds, you know, all the normal crowds, people who are always around. I don't know, maybe. Uh, but couldn't, couldn't it also be that when Andrew and Philip go to tell Jesus that they want to see him, that these Greeks are following him around? And that Jesus turns to the Greeks, and, and they are the them. And I, I think that all of these are reasonable possibilities. The thing is, and this is what trips people up, is what Jesus starts talking about. It says he answered them. Well, we don't see any sort of question. We don't see anything. It's just they want to see him, and he starts talking about his coming death, the sort of the the beauty of what is about to transpire and how important it is that people are faithful, that they're, they're willing to lay down their own lives for the sake of the kingdom, etc. Is that, is that something the Greeks wanted to hear, wanted to know about, whatever? It's all very confusing. So I, some do, in fact, see this text as Jesus responding to the Gentiles. And I'm going to say... I think that's very reasonable, but it's not a slam dunk. Here's the people who think that he is responding to the, well, let's go ahead and call them Greeks, okay? This whole grain of wheat thing is very interesting because it is an allusion to a Greek myth about Persephone. See, the idea is that just as Persephone was this, and we're going to say a lone seed, okay, just as she had to die to be reborn in her full glory, which would be represented by much fruit, okay? And, and that story about Persephone was told using grain. Okay, the theory is that, hey, these Greeks are going to understand exactly what Jesus is talking about. Even though he's a Jewish Messiah, they, they're going to understand that a very similar thing needs to happen to him. Now, is that what's going on here? I don't know, but I mean, it's certainly not impossible. Jesus really might be using the grain of wheat, knowing that these Greeks would quickly understand. And, and he did begin by noting that it was the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. And this is really important because up to now, Whenever they talked about Jesus and the things that were happening to him, he would use phrases like his time had not come or his time was not yet. Well, now, all of a sudden, 
The hour for the Son of Man is here. His time has come. And interestingly, the Son of Man being glorified could be easily understood as Messiah, you know, taking up his throne or beginning the kingdom or, or whatever, all those things that they most of the Jews had as an expectation. And yet, unexpectedly, Jesus is referring to his death and resurrection. And, you know, we've, we've talked about how ironic that is. Now, here's the thing. You, you hear all of that and you go, that doesn't help. He could have been talking to Philip and Andrew. He could have been talking to crowds. He could have been talking to those Greeks. All of it still seems reasonable. And of course, this story, this this example, well, I mean, even think about us reading the scriptures all these years later. This example works with just about any audience as it relates to repentance. Jesus is a single grain of wheat that dies and bears much fruit. And then we also join into his death spiritually, and and I think in some sense in our actions, our behavior, and why? So that we might bear much fruit. And what does that fruit look like? It looks like righteousness. If we try to hold on to all of those things which, you know, we think that they make up our life, if we can call it that, well, if we do that, if we try to hold on to those things, well, we're going to miss out on true life, eternal life. Instead, we have to sacrifice. We have to relinquish our life so that we might experience true life. And that can be even now, in some sense, it's, it's a, a limited sense, but then also with him forever in the, the full sense. So loving your life Uh, Well, you know what? It did it, didn't it? It used the words, yeah, if you love your life, you'll lose it. Whoever hates his life will keep it. Okay, this whole loving your life versus hating your your life, okay, it's it's an idiomatic idiomatic way of speaking, and it's talking about uh, preference. You don't literally love your life. You don't literally hate your life. It's just that you don't prefer your life over true life, eternal life, the kingdom, etc. Jesus, I mean, continues, he's, he's kind of explicit about some other things. If you want to be labeled as one who serves him, you must follow him. As in, in his footsteps, think like he thinks, speak like he speaks, do as he does. You need to be where he is, following his way, not your own, not our own, and in some sense, willing to risk even a similar end. Some people are going to face martyrdom, some not, but you're willing to do that. If we do that, the Father will honor us. It's a consistent message we've heard from Jesus throughout the Gospels. And now, again, I just like to point out, This is especially awesome for Gentiles if he is responding to the Greeks that had come to see him, that wanted to speak with him. Because this, I mean, this is a great picture of him showing, look, okay, I'm I'm stretching a little bit. I I know that, but but just let your mind follow that through. It's like he is talking about how Gentiles can in fact experience the same thing that has been promised to Israel, 
by doing the exact same thing that he expects of Israel. It's not by blood. It's by their faithfulness and loyalty, etc., to him. And Gentiles have the same opportunity. It's an awesome picture. But anyway, I've talked enough about that. What do you think, Samuel? I love it, Paul. Um, I think that this allusion and connection to the Persephone Greek myth, um, potentially tying it to these Gentiles who are asking about Jesus, I think it fits so well. Like, um, So... We've talked about it before that Jesus' primary mission or his goal within his earthly ministry was, you could say, evangelizing, preaching, bringing the message of the gospel of repentance of the kingdom to the house of Israel, like yes. his own ethnic brethren. And it yes. wasn't the the ministry or the mission of the Gentiles didn't happen until after his ascension. So particularly in this last week of his life, I'm picturing Jesus as like this card shark, uh, like in the heat of, you know, the, the the last round of a big poker game where he's having to strategize. He's hyper-focused on the, the cards that are being dealt to him and how he's going to respond, what cards he's going to lay down. And so you could potentially think that having these random gr- Greek guys come up to him would be like, well, that's not his focus. Um, and I'm just trying to connect all the dots that we've talked about today. We started today's episode talking about that uh, Jesus is doing teaching in the last week of his life um, leading yeah. up to his death. And then we get stuff about people who are plotting to kill him, and then these Greeks come up. So I'm just getting... All this is speculative. I'm just trying to paint a picture. I'm just getting this picture of let's just say Jesus and, and his disciples are heading to the place that particular day to teach in the synagogue. And you have these, you know, there's lots of people around, crowds are coming up wanting to hear what he has to say. And you have these Greeks come up and then two of his disciples before Jesus begins to speak saying like, Jesus, like, I'm sorry to interrupt. Like, I know you're getting ready to speak right now, but like there's these two Greeks that will not leave us alone. They They want to talk to you. And so, Jesus does not refrain from his hyper-focused, like, so he doesn't, like, acknowledge him to be like, I'm going to stop what I was doing and have a conversation with them, but he includes this message that is able to be related to these Greek people who are listening within the crowd within the larger scope of this conversation that he's going to continue, but that we'll talk about next week, so... I don't know if that picture made sense, but in my mind, I, it, I just think this Jesus' mas, master orchestrator of being like, man, I'm here for Israel. There's these Greek guys. Let me just throw in this little thing that I know about <laughs> Greek, and right? it's going to minister to them, and then it's also going to minister to my ethnic brethren as well. So, Yeah, and it's a, it's a really great point, Samuel, because, again— the story from the very beginning was that he was going to save man, as in mm-hmm. mankind. Israel was chosen. They were selected. They are elect, but they're a conduit. The story was never that he was only going to save them. It was through them he would save them and all of mankind. And so the fact that Jesus comes and what we see of his life and his ministry is 
I mean, almost exclusively to Israel. There are those few little stories where he sort of reaches outside a little bit, like this one. And, 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 but it doesn't diminish the overall goal. Jesus was fulfilling what was needed, what was required. He was doing what was done. And, of course, you know, we know the plan continues after, that, that it comes through Israel, through the apostles, through other disciples. It, it's such a great picture. So, I, I don't know. Same, I think it's good. And all of this speculation, I mean, you don't want to speculate just to make up crazy stuff, but to let your mind really go down all these paths and try to think and understand and imagine what's really going on. In a way, giving the Spirit opportunity to help you see and know and understand things. I think this is an important part of part of learning and study and and just knowing Him and, mm-hmm. and, and what His plan is. So, you know, you do. You have to show some, some good sense and you have to be careful, but... Man, don't be so rigid that you can't let your mind really cogitate on this stuff. Yeah. I it's mean, good. that's the whole heart of rabbinic midrash itself. The the scholars would take the text and they would think and imagine and try to make the the picture so much more vivid to fit in the missing puzzle pieces of how things were operating within the narrative. So in some ways when we think and explore we're kind of doing that same practice now. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, Samuel, I have an idea. How about we stop and let them think and explore on their own? I like it. <laughs> Let's be done. Okie dokie. Thank you for listening to the Okie dokie Most podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find out more information about the podcast at www.okidokimos.com. And if you'd like to get a hold of us, please send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. Until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.